so wonderful to be back together again. And we even had an extra week this time, which um, I think was actually so much fun with all the snow. And it, I didn't hear of anybody getting injured or anything like that. So hopefully it was a good party without any really serious issues. Um, I always hope every year for one really good snow, and then I'm done. <laughs> so we got a really good snow, and it was so wonderful. So just a few announcements as we get started here. Uh, if you didn't get a flyer and you need one, I think there's some in the back. I didn't actually check. Your schedule, very important. You need to follow your schedule, and obviously we're a week behind, but um, just keep going with the dates as far as the reading goes, and the date that we will not be meeting for ladies' conference, so this is just really, really important for you guys to know what's going on. Also, if you need a book, there should still be some in the back. They're $10 each, and you can um, put your money in the envelope and pop it in the little offering box. Small groups for today because uh, our child care, obviously, in the middle level is not doing so well as far as the building with uh, the leak from last week. So uh, we have the child care upstairs this week. So Rachel's group, Rachel and Lisa Thompson's group will be meeting right here. And Sheila will meet, Sheila's group um, will actually meet in the other classroom, just so that you know. If you don't know who you're in a small group with, please come see me um, afterwards, or maybe Rachel, because I'm going to jet out of here really fast. But anyways, so um, if you have questions about your small group, yeah, just ask us and we can get you uh, hooked up there. And also, um, we added actually last semester, it was the first time in this Bible study that we have added a memory verse, because we just really want all the ladies at Grace to be in the Word, to be memorizing the Word, to be hiding God's Word in your heart. And why do we do that? So that we do not sin against Him. If we are not hiding His Word ever in our hearts, then that's, that's the thing in the power of the Holy Spirit that keeps us from sin. If we don't know the truth, then we aren't even going to know what the sin is. And so we need to have God's Word in our hearts. So um, do, not, do not panic because... We're very loose about this. So each small group kind of handles it themselves. We do not put you on the spot unless you like to be on the spot. Um, so don't panic about it. Really, our goal is accountability for you and a reminder to you because we get busy week after week, do we not? And we're like, I don't know when the last time was that I memorized a verse. So we are here every week to say, hey, are you memorizing? If you're not, here's one to think about. So anyways, in this verse, I, I do this every time, I know. And I love this verse. Well, I really kind of do. Um, along with all the other ones, I always tell you how much I love as well. <laughs> but anyway, great verse. And that's going to be part of our lesson today, actually. And the last thing is that as our church is growing, and currently right now because of all the mess downstairs, but really as our church is growing, as Maryville is growing, we're not quite as hometown as we have been for many, many years. And so along with all these changes come security issues and things like that. And so we want our children always to be safe. And so we are asking, requiring, sorry, we don't ever like to be adamant about anything, but for the safety of the children and all of those things, we would ask that first through sixth graders be in the child care where they are supervised because we have babysitters there that are equipped to take care of the younger children. 
excuse me, children. And then um, if you have children that are seventh grade and older, they're welcome to stay in here and do homework quietly. That's fine. But they need to be in here with us. And that's not to be an inconvenience. I realize that it's way more fun for the kids to roam around. And I know that my boys did that when they were younger and we let them because it was hometown back then but it's not anymore. So anyways, just so that we're all on the same page, you guys know what's going on. Um, and if you see kids wandering around, then you can say, hey, where are you supposed to be? Can I help you get there? Kindly and graciously, gently, sweetly, but um, always helping everybody stay where they are needed to be so that everything is safe and good. So I think that's all of our announcements. And um, with that, we are going to go ahead and start. I will just say real quick, though, that our ladies' conference is coming, and it is the week of March 1st and 2nd, and uh, Caroline Neuheiser is going to be coming and teaching. I don't know if you have had any interaction with counseling stuff. Her and her husband, Jim, have done the counseling videos that um, we watch as part of the training, and they're, they're just really sweet, loving couple. Um, so anyway, she's going to be our speaker, and there will be a flyer in the bulletin about it on Sunday. And also, we'll be putting announcements in um, the women's ministry group and all of that so that you guys are informed. But anyways, just wanted to put that bug in your ear because we're really excited about it and want you all to be there. So anyways, with all that, we are going to go ahead and get started. Father, I do thank you so much for the wonderful blessing and privilege that it is to join our hearts together once again and to come and, and look into your word, to consider our own hearts, to evaluate our lives, to seek to grow not only in knowledge, but that we would grow in our response, in our attitudes, in our words, in our actions, that more and more and more we would reflect the character and heart of our wonderful, beautiful Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that our efforts to get up and come and for the mommies that are getting their children ready to get out the door and all those things would, would not be in vain in the sense that we just come and um, check the box. But Lord, please stir our hearts with your word. I pray that it would penetrate deeply, that your word would stir us, that it would bring conviction, that it would bring comfort and encouragement to those who, who are um, struggling, who are walking through difficult trials, that it would be a conviction to those who are wrestling with sin. Lord, we are so thankful that you are a living God. We are so thankful that your word is living and active and that it does, um, it does penetrate our hearts. And so we ask that you would do that, particularly this semester as we're starting afresh again, that um, you would stir our hearts to desire to be disciplined women, that we would structure our lives in a way that we have one priority and that that priority would be to love you, to fear you, to honor you, to obey you, that you would be the most important thing in everything that, that we do, all of the things that we schedule, that first and foremost, we would seek to do that in a way that honors and pleases you. Lord, as we look into your word specifically this morning, I pray that you would give me clarity of speech and thought. I pray that your Holy Spirit would stir the hearts of the ladies that are here, that we would walk out 
um, with new things to consider and um, that, that we would go home and meditate on these truths and that we would be changed by them. In your name we pray. Amen. So if you are not familiar with Adoniram Judson, I'm going to actually um, begin by giving you his testimony. But in case you don't know who he is, he was a missionary to Burma, which is now Myanmar, uh, back in the 1800s. And he was the one that translated the Burmese language or the Bible into the Burmese language, and it's still the Bible that they use today. Brilliant, brilliant man, um, and he was actually in Burma. I think it was 37 years with one trip back to the U.S. in all of that time. So anyways, I meant to bring one of the, I always like to show you guys books, so I meant to bring one of the books um, that I love. Actually, it's about his wife, and I've got a couple of quotes in here today from his wife as well, um, his first wife, Anne. Um, and the name of the book is My Heart in His Hands, Fabulous, fabulous book. I, t I tell you what, a woman who truly loved the Lord. So anyways, we're going to start with that just so that you know who he is. And this is his testimony of, of when he got saved. Adoniram Judson was the son of a congregational minister who cherished the fond hope that his son would follow in his footsteps. But Adoniram was enamored with his own brilliance and could not think of wasting his superb talents in so dull a calling as the ministry. He graduated at 19 from Providence College, which is now Brown University, as valedictorian. Judson was not only inordinately ambitious, he was also openly atheistic. In the class just above that of Judson was a young man, Jacob Eames, who was exceptionally gifted, witty, and clever, and an outspoken atheist as well. An intimate friendship developed between these two brilliant young men, with Eames becoming a strong influence of atheism in Judson's life. One day, Judson set out on horseback on a tour adventure through several states. He joined a band of strolling players and lived, as he himself related later, a wild and reckless life. Leaving the troop after a few weeks, he continued his trip on horseback, stopping on a historic night at a country inn. Apologetically, the landlord explained that with only one room being vacant, he would be obliged to put him next door to a young man who was extremely ill. In fact, probably dying. I'll take the room, said Judson. Death has no terrors for me. You see, I'm an atheist. Judson retired, but sleep eluded him. The partition between the rooms was very, very thin, and for long hours he listened to the groans of a dying man, groans of agony and groans of despair. The poor fellow is evidently dying in terror. I suppose I should go to his assistance, but what could I say that would help him, thought Judson to himself, and he shivered at the very thought of going into the presence of a dying man. He felt a blush of shame still over him. What would his late unbelieving companions think if they knew of his weakness? Above all, what would witty, brilliant Jacob Eames say if he knew? As he tried to compose himself, the dreadful cries from the, next, from the room next door continued. He pulled the blankets over his head, but still he heard the awful sounds and shuddered. Finally, all became 
quiet in the next room. At dawn, having had no sleep, he rose and inquired of the innkeeper concerning his fellow lodger. He is dead, said the innkeeper. Dead, replied Judson. And do you know who he was? Yes, the innkeeper answered. He was a graduate of Providence College, a young fellow named Jacob Eames. Judson was overwhelmed by the news that the young man who died the previous night in the adjoining room, in evident terror of death, was his college friend. For many hours, the words, dead, lost, lost, kept ringing in his ears. There was now just one place that beckoned him. Turning his, horse, his horse's direction, he went home and begged his father and mother to help him find a faith that would stand the test of life and death, of time and eternity. At this time of acute spiritual struggle, when his mind was filled with dark clouds of infidelity, meaning here unbelief, and his soul enveloped with black darkness of sin, he turned to the word of God. Before long, his heart was cleansed, his mind illumined, and his soul enraptured by the incoming tide of the love of Christ. Henceforth, Ephesians 3, 17 through 19, was his great text, and the love of Christ was his theme. Henceforth, he was magnificently captivated by the love of Christ as he explored the meaning and the abounding fullness of its fourfold dimension, its breadth, its length, its depth, and its height. So I wanted to start, we're not actually going to dig in to this passage this morning, but I wanted to start just so that it was in your mind, if this was such an important passage to him, I wanted to read it to you guys. So Ephesians 3, I'm actually going to read 16 through 19 here. And this was Paul's prayer for the Ephesians, one of the prayers, because remember he had another prayer also in chapter 1. So he says, he prays that God would grant you according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in what? Love. May be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. So, the love of Christ is actually going to be uh, really what we're going to be talking about this morning. And that's why I really started with the uh, illustration of Adoniram Judson, because as he saw his lost condition and he saw what Christ did to save him, he was overwhelmed by the love of Christ. And it was that same love that, that impelled him to go to the mission field. So... What was it that captured Judson's affections, that stirred his heart toward worship and serving God in the foreign mission field of Burma? Like I already said, it was the love of Christ. And it wasn't his love for Christ. It was Christ's love for him that encouraged 
compelled and controlled him. Recognizing the devastating terror of death and the desperate state of his soul, he acknowledged his dire state, his grim future, a fruitless life and a terrifying death. Who could save him? Who would save him? Who would dispel the darkness of his soul and shine the light of hope and peace into his hell-bound heart? Jesus Christ alone. Jesus Christ who exercised humble obedience to the Father by demonstrating incomprehensible love for sinful mankind through death on the cross in place of sinful, rebellious enemies who deserve the fullness of God's wrath. What unfathomable love. How could Adoniram not respond in humble service to the one who secured his salvation, his freedoms from sin, and removed the terror and sting of death? And that ought to be the same for us. The greater understanding we have of the love that Christ has for us, the more we are going to desire to pour our lives out for him. So when we're thinking about disciplines, now don't raise your hand, but how many of you struggle to be disciplined to be in the word? How many of you struggle to be disciplined to memorize scripture, to meditate to study God's word, to consider it. That is because you wrestle to understand the love of Christ for you. Because the more you understand Christ's love for you, the more you are going to be driven to serve him at whatever the cost to your personal self. And so that's what we're really going to look at here this morning. It was the love of Christ that, that compelled Judson to spend his life in suffering and hardship and heartache and grief in the heathen land of Burma for the glory of God and the salvation of millions of heathens perishing in darkness. It was the love of Christ that compelled him to press on even after burying two wives and six children. And that is only a drop in the bucket of the suffering and hardships that he faced. Oh, to know the love of Christ and that this same love would also motivate us as well. So as we consider the importance of cultivating discipline for godliness in our lives, we need to be reminded of the gospel, which is what? It is the expression of Christ's love for us. And as Barbara Hughes wrote in our little book, in chapter 2 actually this, um, from our reading, she said this, The gospel is a woman's first and most important discipline, for it is the source of godliness. If we desire to be disciplined women who reflect godliness, we must begin with the gospel, particularly considering Christ love that motivated him to go to the cross on behalf of wicked and rebellious sinners, which is who we were before we knew Christ. And still sometimes we go back to that same sinful rebellion, do we not? Even once we're saved, we still continue to go back to our sin. We must know the love of Christ. Spurgeon wrote this, 
The gospel to the Christian is a thing of power. What is it that makes the young man devote himself as a missionary to the cause of God? To leave father and mother to go to to distant lands. It is a thing of power that does it. It is the gospel. What is it that constrains the minister in the midst of cholera to climb up that creaking staircase and stand by the bed of some dying creature who has that dire disease? It must be a thing of power which leads him. It is the love of the cross of Christ which bids him to do it and must also bid us to lay our lives down in service to Jesus Christ. We have lots of other things, lots of other responsibilities. We live on this world. We have earthy responsibilities. But oh, that they would never, ever, ever eclipse our understanding of the love of Christ that must compel us to, in everything that we do, to live a life that is honoring and glorifying to him in the little things and our responses to children and husbands and, and co-workers. Even those tiny little attitudes that nobody knows about. The more we understand the love of Christ, the more we will hate that sin, even the little ones in our hearts. And the more we will be driven to desire to reflect the character of Christ in our hearts. So as we begin, I want to begin by really reminding you of the gospel. The beauty of our Savior who gave his life and death that we might escape death and have life. In order for the light of the gospel to shine brightly, it must be displayed against the blackness of our sinful condition apart from Christ. So I'm kind of going to go and like maybe an Um, unusual direction as we start here this morning. And the reason why is because sometimes I think we don't grasp as fully as we could the love of Christ because we don't contemplate very often who we truly are and were before salvation. And if we are not saved, who we currently are now. And so I want to look at that and I don't have time to really dig into this. Um, there's so, I've got, I've got like 10 sermons, like, or, sermons, oh, oh dear. I have 10 teachings, messages, lectures, <laughs> lessons. So Rachel and I had, totally off topic. Rachel and I had a conversation with somebody who's from a different area of the country and talking about what do we call these things that we women give? Well, I always call it a lecture. What do you call it, a lesson? Rachel calls it a lesson. Sometimes I call it a message. And the other person we were talking about, he said from where they come from, they call it teachings. So we're like, well, that sounds Amish. We're not going to do that. (laughs) Anyways, but it's not a sermon. I'm not teaching you a sermon. Okay. So anyways, um, where was I going with all that? So anyways, um, that we need to understand who we are as sinners because the more we see our sinful state apart from Christ, the more his love will shine so brightly when we are amazed that he would choose to save us. So that's what we're going to do is we're going to look at that. And I'm actually going to go even deeper into that still because I'm not only going to 
invite you to look at who we are as scripture describes us before we know the Lord. But what is the destiny of an unbeliever? What is their eternal destination? What does that look like? It's, it's very sobering. But as we look at those things, it should cause us to, to see the love of Christ so much more fully. So that is my desire and that's why I'm going here today. And I know that some of us, many of us have unbelieving family members and um, loved ones that hearing stuff like this is hard. I'll just be really honest with you. It's hard and it hurts. But might it spur us to greater prayer, not despair, not grief, but that it would stir us to greater prayer to see that God would save their souls as well. So here we go. A on your outline is the sinner's plight. Who are we apart from Christ? What is the condition of the sinner's heart? What is his future and what are his limitations? So some of that we're going to answer here. And like I said, I'm not going to go into this deeply, but I want you to hear it. So number one is the unbeliever is spiritually dead. Ephesians 2, 1, and then also verse 3 says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, and were by nature children of wrath. So we were dead in our trespasses and sins. That means that our hearts did not have the Holy Spirit, and all we could do was sin. Now, can unbelievers do good things? Yes, they can do good things. They can do kind things. They can even do loving things. But the motive is not because they love Jesus Christ. And that is a huge difference. Because when the unbeliever finds that their needs are not being, their felt needs are not being met by their demonstration of this kindness and love, they grow weary of it and they cease to be kind or loving anymore. But because we as believers have the Holy Spirit, we are empowered then to be able to love when otherwise we would not be able to because our hearts are alive by the Holy Spirit. So number two, they're children of Satan. This is very sobering as well. Uh, you may have heard like people in the world saying things like, well, everybody's children of God. No. No, they are not. Because this scripture right here, John 8, 44, says that they are not. Unbelievers are children of Satan. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Number three. Captives of Satan to do his will. So the unbeliever is a captive of Satan. <clears throat> Second Timothy 2.26 says, And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Have you ever wondered, okay, just looking at our crazy political world, which I rarely ever look at and tell my husband, I don't want to know. <laughs> And it's not that bad. It's good to know some of that stuff. I understand that. But you know what? Ultimately, we can't change it. But it is a circus. It really is a circus. And you know why? Because these people are held captive by Satan, who is their father, that they would do the will of Satan. This is a grim, grim standing for the unbeliever. 
Number four, their minds are blinded. <clears throat> Second Corinthians 4, 4 says, The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Not only does Satan hold the unbeliever captive, but he has blinded their minds so that they cannot understand the gospel. And they have no desire to understand the gospel. And so, as we know, our beautiful, wonderful Savior has to shine the light of the gospel and quicken the heart unto salvation so that a person can come to know the Lord. But the unbeliever's heart and mind is blinded. Five, they are unrighteous. And I'm going to read two passages here, uh, Romans 3, 10 through 18. And I have cut little phrases out if they don't directly apply here. So um, if you're following along, you'll see that. But Romans 3, 10 through 18, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one apart from Christ. There is none who understands. Why do they not understand? Because Satan has blinded their minds. That's why they don't understand. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one who does good. With their tongues, they keep deceiving. They're liars. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are quick to, or, excuse me, swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. And here's the summary of all of that. There is no fear of God before their eyes. There is no reverence. There is no awe of God before their eyes. They do not fear God. And then 2 Timothy 3, 2 through 4 says, and this is the description of who men will be in the later days, right? But I think that this explains well this idea of unrighteousness as well. So men will be lovers of self. Wow, we see that to a very great degree in our culture today. Lovers of money, boastful, arrogant. Keep in mind, this is unrighteousness. Boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control. Do you ever get angry and fly off the handle? You are demonstrating the characteristic of an unbeliever when you act like that. Brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than what? Lovers of God. So the unbeliever is unrighteous. The unbeliever, number six, is a slave of sin. Romans 6.16 says, You are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. And of course, what did we read earlier? That Satan holds the unbeliever captive to do his will. If you are held captive, then you are likely also a slave. So the unbeliever is a slave to do wickedness as well, sinfulness, held captive by Satan to do that. And as I'm reading all of these, think about who you were before Christ. This is who we all were before Christ. If, if you do not have confidence that you know Christ is your Savior, is this who you are as well? 
Number seven, children of wrath. And this is a terrifying thing. Ephesians 2, 3, and I read this earlier, but I'm reading it again. And it says, and were by nature children of wrath. What does that mean, children of wrath? Does it mean that, that the people are just wrathful people? No, it means that they are under the wrath of God that is coming for them eventually if they do not repent. This is the unbeliever. Number eight, they are destined for eternal punishment. Matthew 25, 46 says this, they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So that is kind of our quick summary of the heart of the unbeliever. And so when, when we recognize and see our lost state, there is no possibility entirely enslaved to sin, a child of Satan, blinded minds, uh, um, totally unrighteous, rebellious against God. Why, why would Jesus Christ choose to save us that love, when we see how wicked we are, our hardened hearts apart from him, it should just dazzle us so that we desire with everything in us to praise him and live for him for the rest of our lives. But we forget to look at who we are and we're proud and we're puffed up in our own imagination and we think we're something special. We think we're above whatever, somebody else, whatever it is. No, we aren't because that is who we are apart from our Savior. And now we're going to look at what does this mean for the unbeliever? What is that destination? What is their eternal future? Because that ought to also spur us to recognize the wonderful beauty of our Savior, that this is not our destiny if we know our true, wonderful, gracious Jesus Christ. So B, capital B, is eternal punishment. The Bible speaks of hell, and so this is a um, quote from John MacArthur, and I just thought I'd start here because it's a great summary, and that's all it is, is a little summary. The Bible speaks of hell in very specific words. Agony, banishment, brimstone, curse, Darkness, deprivation, destruction, distress, fire, teeth grinding, guilt, hopelessness, loneliness, pain, suffering, pressure, prison, punishment, ruin, separation, shame, contempt, smoke, sulfur, torment, trouble, trash heap, weeping. That is an extensive list of what the destination is for the unbeliever. And at the very end of all of that, he says, all for ever. This has been very sobering to me as I have been studying all of this. Forever. I can't comprehend what forever means. What, is that, what does that look like forever? So Revelation 21.8 says, and I'm going to read different verses and then we're going to look at, I'm just going to have you guys write out on your outline the things that the verses say basically about what the eternal punishment is. 
So, uh, sorry, Revelation 21.8. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone. So number one is it's a lake of fire. And I heard someone describe this one time about it being a lake. And when you think about being in the middle of a lake, is there security? Is there footing? No, there's no security, floating, swimming, whatever way you want to think about that. But there's, there's no firmness, there's no foundation, a lake of fire. Mark 9, 47 and 48 says, and he's talking about those being cast into hell, where their worm does not die. And the fire is not quenched. So number two, the worm that never dies. And this is specifically uh, regarding the kinds of worms that prey on dead bodies. And I have known this verse and heard this verse and never really thought about it until I was studying this. The horror of maggots. One of the commentaries I was reading gave all these different kinds of Worms that are death-eating worms. Worms that never die. Number three, the fire is unquenched. It burns and nothing will ever put it out forever and ever. Revelation 14 10 through 10b through 11 says he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever and they have no rest day and night so number four is eternal tormenting fire torment forever number five is brimstone and really we don't use that word anymore do we even know what it means so <laughs> And it's an archaic term, which our Bibles still tend to use. And it actually just means that awful smell of sulfur. Number six, no rest day or night. Can you just imagine the exhaustion? No rest day or night. Matthew 25, 30, throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Number seven is hell is dark. There's an entire absence of light. And what that means with the lake of fire, we think of fire produces light. I don't, I don't know, but scripture tells us it's dark. Number eight is weeping and wailing awful because of the torment. Number nine is gnashing of teeth. And this phrase denotes the extreme anguish and utter despair of hell forever and ever. Ecclesiastes 9.10 says, there is no activity or planning or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol. So number 10 is no activity or planning. So not only is this torment and exhaustion, there's no rest, but there's no activity. There's no planning. And number 11 is no knowledge and no wisdom. So there, there's nothing to do. It's just boredom in this terrible, terrible torment. Nothing to distract from the eternal torment. 
Matthew 25, 41 says, depart from me. This is Jesus. Uh, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. So number 12 is eternal fire that wasn't ultimately designed for humanity. It was created for Satan and his followers. So I do want to give you just a little bit of an explanation here. We don't have time to go into a lot of doctrine on all of this. But I do want to, I do want to give you a little nugget here. Why is this punishment eternal? It's a really good question, right? Because, and we have lots of people in our world that ask questions or that are trying to get rid of hell. You know, the book that's um, erasing hell. Um, there's all kinds of people that are like, no, it's just, we die, it's over. Um, or, you know, once like Catholics believe that you go to purgatory for a time and then you get out of that. So your punishment is, is limited. That's not what scripture tells us. So why is this punishment eternal then? Hell does not cleanse a person from his sin. Hell is not corrective. It is punitive. Once a person crosses the line from physical death into eternity, his heart can no longer be regenerated. He no longer has the opportunity to place his faith in the substitutionary death of Christ in his place. In essence, the unbeliever who refused Christ as his Savior while on earth has determined that he will pay the price for his own sin. Because he did not bow his will in humble submission to the Father, trusting in the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ on his behalf, his sinful heart is never justified. It is never cleansed. He enters eternity standing on his own merit, which only incurs the wrath of God. As an eternal being, he will never cease to exist. And because the opportunity for salvation has expired, he must face eternal punishment. So here's another quote from John MacArthur. Infinite crimes against an infinite God deserve an infinite punishment. Here is the key. Sinners who go to hell never repent. They continue to rebel. Every description of hell indicates to us that it is not a remedial experience. It is not remedial justice. It is retro I was having trouble with this word earlier. Retributive justice. They remain God haters forever so that the punishment never catch up, catches up with the sin. They go to hell and keep on sinning forever. And so that that cycle never ends. There is no redemption and the sin continues and continues. And so the punishment just continues and continues as well. That is why the punishment is eternal. So truly the spiritual state of the unbeliever is a terrifying condition. His position before God is one of impending damnation in which he waits for the judgment of God to fall upon him at any moment. There is no hope, but as Hebrews says, Hebrews 10, 27, but a terrifying expectation of judgment. That is where the unbeliever stands. We cannot begin to comprehend the torment, the anguish, the pain, the suffering, the loneliness, or the rebellion that will exist in the eternal fire. 
Only faith in Jesus Christ can save the sinner from eternal punishment. And yet the sinner does not want to recognize or confess his sin. In rebellion, he stands in stubborn opposition to the saving grace offered in Jesus Christ. The wrestle to bow the knee can cause extreme anguish of heart in the heart of the unbeliever. And so I wanted to read you a quote from John Bunyan. This is the same John Bunyan that wrote Pilgrim's Progress. And I've got a couple of quotes, and I just think these are just, they just stir your heart. At least they did mine, so we'll see if they stir yours. But anyways, uh, he describes his confusion, his fear, and his hardness of heart before salvation. So he was poring over the scriptures, but finding no peace or assurance. There were seasons of great doubt about the scriptures and about his own soul. And he says this, a whole flood of blasphemies, both against God, Christ, and the scriptures were poured upon my spirit to my great confusion and astonishment. My heart was at times exceedingly hard. If I would have given a thousand pounds for a tear, I could not have shed one When he thought that he was established in the gospel, so he thought he had become a believer, apparently, there came a season of overwhelming darkness following a terrible temptation to, and then this is his description, so quote, sell and part with this most blessed Christ. Let him go if he will. I felt my heart freely consent thereto. Oh, the diligence of Satan. Oh, the desperateness of man's heart. For two years, he tells us, so sorry, that was the end of the quote. So um, the, the um, writer is saying again, for two years, he tells us he was in the doom of damnation. And then uh, John Bunyan says this again, I feared that this wicked sin of mine might be that sin unpardonable. Oh, no one knows the terrors of those days but myself. I found it a hard work to pray to God because despair was swallowing me up. You can hear the wrestle and the anguish of his heart. He's not a believer. And yet that wrestle between submitting to the will of God and fighting in his own sinful rebellion. I do not know what your conversion was like. Perhaps you too wrestled as John Bunyan did. Perhaps it wasn't as dramatic, but the reality is you were a sinner enslaved by Satan to do his will, destined for eternal unquenchable fire. Did you wrestle with your sin? Did you experience anguish over your desperate plight? Did you recognize your hopelessness and helplessness? Perhaps your conversion is not in the past. Perhaps you are wrestling right now to bow the knee, to admit you do not truly know Christ as your Savior. I remember being a four-year-old. That's very, very young to come to know the Lord. But I remember as a four-year-old, and it wasn't all the sin in my heart. There's not a whole lot of sin you can do when you're four. I wasn't a murderer or anything. But this was still true of my own conversion because being a missionary's kid, I saw the anguish and the suffering of the unbelieving tribal people and all these things that I've just described to you. I saw that as a four-year-old 
I saw their hopelessness and their helplessness. And I saw that Jesus was the only one that could penetrate that darkness. And I thought, between the two, my goodness. And the Lord opened my eyes so that I could understand and see that and recognize that Jesus Christ was the only one that could, that could set me free from my sin. Did you also experience that? The wrestle of the sin. So then listen again to John Bunyan as he describes the wonder of his salvation. He says, my righteousness was Jesus Christ himself, the same yesterday and today and forever. My chains fell off my legs indeed. I was loosed from my afflictions and irons. My temptations also fled away. So that from that time, those dreadful scriptures of God about the unforgivable sin left off to, trou left off to trouble me. Now went I also home rejoicing for the grace and the love of God. What, what moved him? It was the love of God in Jesus Christ for his soul. That's what we've got to understand. That's why we're looking at all of this so that we can see the beauty and the wonder of the light of Jesus as it shines into the darkness of our lives and realize, look what he's done for us. And that ought to spur us to the disciplines. It seems like a really big, powerful explanation just to go, and disciplines. But ladies, disciplines are the path to knowing God. And if we aren't doing the disciplines, then how do we know our Savior? How do we know the Word? How do we not live in sin? So there's a direct correlation, and we need to see those things. Oh, the joy, the gratitude, the freedom in salvation. What was he rejoicing in? The love of God. When we see ourselves as we truly are, the love of God in Christ Jesus overwhelms us. It should most certainly cause us to rejoice. So when I was a child, one of the church planning missionary families who worked with my parents in Papua New Guinea shared how the gospel penetrated the darkness of the tribal group in which they lived and worked. Initially, they began with language and culture studies so they could accurately present the gospel to the people. Then, beginning with creation, they explained who God was as the perfect, holy creator, owner. From there, they described the major timeline of the biblical events and the characters in the Old Testament working their way toward Christ. They explained the fall of Adam and Eve and how their sin created a separation between them and God. With each historical account, they described humanity's need for a sinless Savior that would save them from their sin and restore their relationship to God. As the tribal people listened, they compared themselves to the Bible characters. They recognized their own sin and realized they needed a perfect sinless Savior. When the missionaries finally entered the New Testament and explained who Jesus, the, who Jesus was as the sinless man, the tribal people became so excited. This was the one, the promised Messiah, 
He was perfect. He was sinless. He could save mankind from their sin. He was the one who could provide substitutionary atonement. On the day the missionaries described the events of the crucifixion, the people were absolutely devastated. The one, the only perfect one, the one who could save humanity from their sin and bring them to God had been killed for all their, all their hope for salvation disappeared with Jesus. The people were devastated. For 24 hours, those tribal people waited in anguish for the rest of the narrative. Who could save mankind now? They were up late into the night discussing the details and expressing their concerns. Waiting until the following day, the missionaries let them ponder and let them consider. When the next morning dawned, the people gathered to hear the rest of the account. When the missionaries described the events of the resurrection, the people spontaneously began to jump and dance and celebrate. Jesus was the Messiah. He was the one. This celebration literally continued for hours and hours. God had opened the blinded eyes of their hearts so that they could understand the gospel. The light of the gospel penetrated the darkness of that remote, previously unreached tribal group, and they rejoiced in their salvation. Sinners were rescued through the love of Christ demonstrated in the glorious death and resurrection of Jesus. And what did it do? It led to gratitude and rejoicing because they saw Jesus as the answer to who they were in their sin. They saw him as the savior and it caused great rejoicing. So see on your outline is rescue for sinners through Jesus Christ. This is the transforming power of the gospel. When the beauty of the good news shines the light of hope into the pitch blackness of the unbelieving heart, life springs anew. The eyes of blinded hearts are given sight. Hope is born. The chains of slavery are broken. The sinner is set free and the result should be gratitude, overflowing, unceasing gratitude that results in obedience. Colossians 1, 13 and 14 says, For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. If we have recognized our sin and repented, if we have placed our trust in Jesus Christ for salvation, we should, like those tribal people, celebrate what Christ has done for us. How often do you stop to contemplate your salvation? How often do you reflect on what Jesus Christ has done for you? How often do you live in the light of your freedom from sin? How often do you consider the eternal hope you have knowing you have been rescued from the domain of darkness? Because of Christ, we have been set free from the enslaving power of sin. He rescued us from eternal damnation and the wrath of God. And so number one on your outline, and again, just looking very briefly at just a couple of passages here, is number one, Jesus brings us to God. 
First Peter 3.18, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. This right here should just cause us to rejoice because sin causes a separation between us and God and nothing could bridge that gap. That's why it was so devastating to those tribal people. There was no bridge. They couldn't get to God. But Jesus is the one that brings us to God. Number two, he canceled our debt. Colossians 2.14 says, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of degrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way. I just love this next phrase. Having nailed it to the cross. That's who we are as believers. Our sins have been nailed to the cross because of our great, wonderful Savior. Number three, he freed us from sin. First Peter 2, 24. And he himself bore our sins in his body on that cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds you were healed. How often do we consider who we are apart from Christ? Because it is our natural human inclination to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. And because we fail to contemplate the true condition of our wicked hearts apart from Christ, we fail to rejoice in the salvation we have been granted in Christ. And we get petty and picky and selfish, and we focus all on our own little kingdom. Ann Judson, so I mentioned her earlier, um, uh, Adoniram's wife, she describes her view of herself as she contemplated her salvation, and this is what she says. Oh, how different were my views of myself and of God from what they were when I first began to inquire what I should do to be saved. I felt myself to be a poor, lost sinner destitute of everything to recommend myself to the divine favor. Sorry, the language is a little bit old, so just kind of keep up with it. That I was by nature inclined to every evil way and that it had been the more the mere sovereign restraining mercy of God, not my own goodness, which had kept me from committing the most flagrant of crimes. This view of, my hum, of myself humbled me in the dust, melted me into sorrow and contrition for my sins, induced me to lay my soul at the feet of Christ and plead his merits alone as the ground of my acceptance. I felt that if Christ had not died to make an atonement for sin, I could not ask God to dishonor his holy government so far as to save so polluted a creature. And that, sh and that should he even now condemn me to suffer eternal punishment, it would be so just that my mouth would be stopped and all holy beings in the universe would acquiesce in the sentence and praise him as a just and righteous God. Because we are that sinful that a just and holy and righteous God should send all of us to hell. And that he has not done that should cause us to be amazed at the kind of love that would save people like us. The problem is, is we don't think we're that bad. And so we don't see Christ's love as being that great. 
Eternal damnation is our due. It is what we have rightly earned. And as Ann Judson explained, God would be righteous, just, and good to give us what we deserve. Oh, how sweet the love of Christ is when we see it against the backdrop of what we deserve. How often do we stop to contemplate our freedom from sin? How often do we contemplate what it cost Jesus to purchase our salvation? How often do we meditate on the incomprehensible love he demonstrated to us and rescuing us from the domain of darkness? Not nearly enough. Our knowledge of the love of Christ is weak. It's feeble and anemic, faltering. That is why Paul prayed in Ephesians that we would grow in our knowledge of Christ's love for us. This phenomenal love should inspire gratitude, rejoicing, worship, humility, and obedience. It should be the gospel that spurs us on, that gives us hope, and motivates us to live in a manner worthy of Christ's death. So 2 Corinthians, and this is your memory verse, 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15 says, For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. The love of Christ controls us, this verse says. These two powerful verses Paul is explaining that he is motivated, compelled, prompted, urged. And that word, so I'm, I'm describing the word um, controlled. And it really means pressured into action. So Paul is describing all of this because of the love of Christ. It's the love of Christ that does this in his heart. So D on your outline is controlled by Christ's love. Everything in Paul's life was motivated by Christ's love for him because Paul understood and recognized who he was in his sinful rebellion, in his depravity. And so because he saw, and he never, he never stopped looking at his, his wickedness. And so he saw the beauty of, of the love of Christ that would save him from his sin. Paul never got over his amazement of Christ's love for him, and it spurred thankful obedience. So number one is understanding Christ's love results in thankful obedience. And I'm just going to read from 1 Timothy here. It's... Um, a few verses, 12 through 17, so it's a little bit longer, but listen to the heart of Paul as I read through this because this really reflects just his recognition of himself and his amazement of Christ. And he says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful putting me into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord was more abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on in verse 15 and he says, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Jesus, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. There are several places in scripture where Paul says that about himself. 
Yet for this reason, I found mercy so that in me is the foremost of sinners, he's saying, Jesus Christ might be demonstrated might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. And then, as so um, Pauline, if you would say, he just bursts out and he says in verse 17, to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Because when he looked at who he was and he saw who Christ was and that Christ saved him from who he was, it, it just, he could not help himself. And if you read through his epistles, this is what you see over and over again. He just has these random bursts out in praise of who God is, that ought to be us because we should constantly be looking at the beauty of who Christ is so that it would spur us to be just like Paul. To what degree does the love of Christ control you? The word means, as I already said earlier, to urge, impel, to drive forward. It carries the idea of causing pressure that results in action. So if I asked you what drives your daily life, your decisions, your schedule, your priorities, your attitudes, what would you say? Would it be fear? Would it be the desire to have other people think well of you? That's, that's just a big one across the board. And all of us wrestle with that in one degree or the other. Would it be your own agenda? Your schedule of things you want to accomplish the way you want things to be? As Christians, it should be Christ's love for us that controls us, that motivates us. And I have this awesome quote by Charles Hodge, and he says this. I, it's a description of a Christian, and it's just, it's great. He says, a Christian is one who recognizes Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God. As God manifest in, manifested in the flesh, loving us and dying for our redemption, and who is so affected by a sense of love of this incarnate God as to be constrained to make the will of Christ, the rule of his obedience and the glory of Christ, the great end for which he lives. So essentially what he's doing is he's summing up in a really succinct way all the things I've been saying for the last 45 minutes. So that's what he's saying. It's the love of Christ uh, that the Christian looks at that, that constrains him to obedience. And he goes on and he says, the man who does this perfectly is a perfect Christian. Well, we know none of us do that. So none of us are perfect Christians. The man who does it imperfectly, yet with a sincere desire to be entirely devoted to Christ as a sincere Christian. On the other hand, the man who lives for himself his family, science, the world, mankind, or whatever, is not a Christian. The great question is, what constitutes a Christian? The answer, it is being so constrained by a sense of the love of our divine Lord that we concentrate our whole lives on him. Is that not a beautiful quote? That should be who we are. Does Christ's love for you drive what you do, what you say, where you go, what your attitudes are, and how you interpret all that occurs in your life? It makes sense that the less we understand the value, the love of Christ, 
the, excuse me, understand and value the love of Christ, the less control it will have in our lives, the less it will motivate us. So we need to ask ourselves, how well do I know and understand the love of Christ? How important is the love of Christ to me? To what degree does the love of Christ urge me to live in a manner worthy of the gospel? The more we understand Christ's love, the more it will become the driving force of all that we do, all that we say, all that we think, and on and on. And of course, what's the flip side? The less we understand it, the less it will control us. So, so, excuse me. So here is how the love of Christ relates to whether or not we implement the spiritual disciplines into our lives. To the degree that we are motivated by Christ's love, we will desire to pursue the path that pleases him. The path that leads us into greater knowledge of him and his word and obedience to him. The more we understand Christ's love, the more we will seek to implement the disciplines of a godly woman into our lives. So number two, understanding Christ's love will result in implementing the disciplines. So what I am saying ultimately is this. The Christian life is spurred on by a growing understanding of the love of Christ for us. Thus, we must continue to grow in understanding Christ's love. We must always be seeking to understand more and more the depth of the love that our God would have to save us when we recognize who we are and what we truly deserve. Do you struggle to be disciplined? Perhaps you should consider the degree to which you meditate on and consider the immense love of Christ for you that impelled him to lay his life down, to take the punishment that you deserved. It might be helpful to ask, What do my spiritual disciplines reveal about my understanding of Christ's love for me? If my discipline is low, if my obedience to his word is spotty and half-hearted, I must consider and acknowledge that my knowledge of his love is low. So as we embark on this new study, my encouragement to you is to prioritize growing in your knowledge of Christ's love for you. So what I have been doing for the last few weeks in preparation of this is I've just started reading through the Gospels. And so I kind of tend to do this. I go to the same place and like saturate myself in it. And so when I was studying for the minor prophets, guess what? I read a whole bunch of, (laughs) spent a lot of time in the Old Testament trying to put all that into my head. So I've really been focusing on the Gospels. Who is Jesus? And what do all the different writers have to say about him in the Gospels. And you know what? I don't get it all the first time, so I need to go back and read it again and just keep reading it again because I want to understand more fully the love of Christ. So my disciplines will always be lacking if my understanding of Christ's love for me is shallow and dull. Thus, I must know the love of Christ so that it will control me as it did the Apostle Paul. So with all of that in your mind, you guys are going to be able to go to your small group. And um, let's go ahead and close in prayer. 
Father, I do thank you so much for the beauty and wonder of your word. And Lord, I do ask that you would help us to take these things seriously, that we would strive to understand more and more fully the love of Christ that was demonstrated in the gospel on behalf of wicked sinners such as us. We thank you and praise you for who you are. In your name we pray. Amen.